0: New year, new campaign in the <laughs> uh, new campaign that we're starting this year. We're calling it Resilient Christianity. Basically, what we're going to do is just go through the book of First Peter. I hope to get through most of it, but we shall see. I won't be preaching on all of it, but what I don't preach on will all be in the devotional. Uh, we need resilience is the idea in our Christian faith. I've heard our culture described uh, as a post-Christian culture. The obvious idea is that Christianity used to be a much stronger influence in our culture than it is today. It's waning in influence, in power, in popularity. And I don't think I need to prove this to you. I think you feel it, right? We, we sense it and we know it to be true. The broadly accepted ideas are not coming out of Christianity anymore. They're coming out of other worldviews, our cultural norms, our, our things like ethics are gravitating toward, away from Christianity towards other worldviews and ideas, frameworks for morality and what is good and what is right and what is true. Mostly it's gravitating towards the self, right? And so in this post-Christian culture, uh, what we're going to need is resilience. Because in a Christian culture, which most of us have grown up with, if you've lived... Uh, here in the U.S. most of your life or all of your life for the last X number of years, and you've been a Christian, a Christian culture produces kind of a soft Christianity where it's really easy to be a Christian. It's culturally advantageous to say, I am a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. That is changing. It has already changed. Where when you say, I'm a Christian and a follower of Jesus now, at best it's a neutral statement, right? But often it's even a negative statement. And say, oh, like, you're bigoted. Like, you are against all of these things. You are uh, all whatever. <laughs> Dogmatic. That's the term I was looking for that I couldn't find. Um, <laughs> all of these things. And those, those count as, like, negatives most often in our culture when I say I'm a Christian and a follower of Jesus. And so all of this begs the question of how, how we as Christians should act in this post Christian culture that we find ourselves in? Should we, as some would suggest, fight fire with fire and seek to win back that influence, that power, and popularity by any means necessary? Should we escape and run to the hills, as be described as more of like a monastic idea, like retreat from culture and be completely isolated in our? Christian communities. Thankfully, scripture has a lot to say to this. And 1 Peter especially has a lot to tell us as Christians today about how we are to live in a culture which is not dominated by Christianity, Christian ideals, and influence. We're going to talk today, we're just going to go through the introduction first two verses, and I promise I will move much faster in the coming weeks. (laughs) You're like, I don't believe you. You just meant four weeks and four verses. I will. I promise. All right. (laughs) So today, we're just going to kind of talk about the audience, the occasion for writing, why Peter's writing this, uh, and who Peter is as he's writing this, and how his story and his experience is going to provide the background and kind of provide some good information for us to know why he's writing the things that he does in this letter as we go through it. So let's first read it. This is a pretty typical introduction to a letter in the ancient world. But Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia, and Bithynia. I screwed up the only one that's like still... A place. Wow. Well done. <laughs> who, has been chosen, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. All right. So I said that's a pretty typical introduction in the ancient world to a letter. You guys are like, that's heavy, (laughs) right? Like, look at the second verse. You're like, that's how he says hi? Yeah, (laughs) right? Um, And the way he says hi here is is indicative of what he's going to say in the rest of the letter, and it's providing a backbone for us to build off of for the rest of this letter. So we're going to spend a whole Sunday on it and see what Peter is saying here. So first, who he addresses this letter to, we'll come back to talking about Peter in a moment, who he addresses the letter to, he calls them God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of, yeah, those Roman provinces. (laughs) Those are places in what's present-day Turkey, um, Asia Minor in this day and age. Um, And these are far less populated regions, so it's not like Ephesus, which is on the coast and Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians. Uh, That is a cultural hub. There's lots of people coming and going. These provinces are in northern Turkey and in eastern Turkey. Not a lot happening there. They're kind of the further reaches of the Roman Empire at this time. So these are like new territories of the Roman world. And he calls them exiles. So We can read this as is this just a like metaphor for the Christian life um, he's definitely doing that, and we'll kind of touch on that next week. We'll talk about it a lot. Um, but the more I studied it, and I went on a long rabbit trail on this. I told Savannah this week, like, I, I spent so much time looking, because I just kind of had to know. And then Savannah asked me at one point, he's like, what, is, what's the, what does it matter? And I was like, I don't know, <laughs> right? <laughs> I was like, I, I gotta, sometimes i got to pump the brakes because I get in too deep. Um, but no, it fills in some of the context for us of what these people are dealing with and who they are and what's going on in, in their current communities and why Peter writes this letter. So, exiles, it's, it's probably a bit of a strong word, the translation. Um, exile It's referring to like a sojourner, which we're like, nobody says that anymore today. Anyways, what does, what does that mean? Like a resident alien, a temporary uh, resident We use phrases like refugee and immigrant more um, today. And those are probably more in line with what Peter's saying here, like a a refugee, God's elect refugees who have been scattered. Scattered is, uh, uh, man, if you want to nerd out with somebody, drop diaspora in there, okay? That's the Greek term. Um, We talked about this all the time in seminary. So if you want to impress somebody with how smart you are, go ahead and say that. You're welcome. Um, (laughs) But it's the dispersion. It means scattered. It means uh, what happened, there's a number of cases of this, even in Scripture, where in Acts chapter, I wrote it down, I think it's chapter 8. Yep, in Acts chapter 8, due to persecution uh, from Saul, the church in Jerusalem disperses. They scatter. Right, So a lot of Christians who were living in Jerusalem, now that they're being persecuted, some of them choose to leave, some of them stayed, some of them chose to leave and go to different regions. And it says wherever they went, they preached the gospel there. So this is part of God's plan for how he brought the gospel to the Roman world, was through persecution in a cultural hub like Jerusalem, and then people leave. All right, and they go, and then they establish churches in these new communities where they are. In AD 49, Claudius, emperor of Rome, he exiled the Jews from the city of Rome. And he did this because of the Christ controversy. So in the Romans' mind in this day and age, the Jews and Christianity wasn't a thing, right? In 8049, it wasn't to them, right? So Jews were indistinguishable from Christians. So a lot of Christians were kicked out there too, most likely. So likely what happened is through these various exiles or through persecution, or just through resettlement programs, a lot of Christians ended up leaving and settling in these areas. And so these are the people to whom Peter is writing. So they had been asked to leave their home, or forcibly they have left their home due to persecution, and they have settled in this new area. And here, as we're going to see as we go throughout this letter, they're facing more persecution here in In these regions of the Roman Empire. And so the sense is, we aren't wanted anywhere, right? You're persecuted, you're forced to leave, you're persecuted in your new location. I have no home. No place feels like home to me. And that's a deep longing that we all have. And so what Peter says here, even in the beginning, is, you have a home, you are God's elect. He calls them. You are God's elect. You're not wanted in your current location. You're not wanted by the city of Rome or in Jerusalem or wherever they're from. But you're chosen by God. That's what Peter's emphasizing to them and what he's going to emphasize to them for the rest of this letter. Nobody else wanted them, but God chose them. And a lot of the Christians who have come from a Jewish background or who knew their Old Testament they were likely probably viewing this exile as a punishment from God. Because in the Old Testament, we read the exile of the people of Israel to Babylon, to Assyria, as like God's last resort punishment for his people after they failed through generation after generation to obey the law of Moses. And so they're probably viewing this as another punishment like that. And Peter is going to emphasize throughout this letter, like, that's not what's happening here. Actually, you are being exiled and persecuted because you are chosen by God. Okay. That's a theme we're going to come back to again and again and again. Okay, so they're exiled, they're scattered, they are refugees, immigrants, without a home, but they are chosen by God. So Now, if you're familiar with the... Calvinism, Arminianism conversation, and the temptation is going to be for you to think about that this whole sermon, don't, please, <laughs> all right, put that on the back burner, you can you can uh, think through that during the week, um, but for today, as we're worshiping together, let's just see what Peter has to say here, and you can think through the depths of theology later. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that's fine, too, if you have questions and want to ask me about it, we can talk, but... That's fine. All right. They are elect exiles, scattered, dispersed throughout those regions. He's going to emphasize it again. Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Notice how all three members of the Trinity are involved here. God has chosen them. We've already kind of talked about that, about how God takes the initiative in choosing them and saving them. And also, Peter emphasizes that God is their father, right? He's not a despotic ruler like Caesar or their local magistrates. He's their father who has chosen them and adopted them and brought them into his family. No, this persecution that you're facing, you don't feel like at home right now. You have a home in God because he has chosen you and you are a part of his family. Even though they don't feel like citizens in their culture. They are citizens in the kingdom of God, and that's better. Then he says, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that's by means of how you've been chosen or brought into the family of God, is by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Sanctifying here means to like set apart as holy or to like single out, separate out as distinct and holy for special use. In the temple, it was often used as for priests or like certain instruments in the temple. And by extension, then pure. So you are made pure. You are made holy by God's choosing of you and sanctifying you through the Spirit of God. Notice again, it's all God who does this. Karen Jobs in her commentary, says, It is the Spirit who first stirs in the heart a reaching toward God, quickens one's understanding of the gospel, convicts of sin, reassures of pardon, and transforms the character by his fruit of virtue's. What a way to introduce a letter, right? It's like some serious, deep theology. <laughs> but a glorious truth, especially to those who don't feel like they have a home, it is God, you're a part of God's family. God's adopted you. He wanted you to be a part of his family. He chose you. And he sanctified you. He's made you holy by the Spirit of God. To be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. (laughs) All right, again, a weird way to open a letter, right, and say hi. But (laughs) this is why I think Peter is definitely writing to some Jewish Christians as well. It's not just Gentile Christians because if he just drops like sprinkled with his blood in there, they're like, what are you talking about? Like most of us are thinking right now, like that's a weird thing to do. Uh, What he's doing here is linking them to Exodus 24. Um, In Exodus 24, uh, when Moses receives the law of God and the people, he he communicates it to the people of Israel. This is the way that they like ratify the covenant where the people say like, yes, like we will be obedient to uh, the law that God has given us. And then he sprinkles with them with the blood of a sacrifice as a sign of like, yes, we are in covenant relationship Together, okay. so that's kind of the idea. Is this covenant relationship that we have with God now is through the blood of Jesus Christ? That is not through sacrifice of animals as in the past, right? That we are made holy. We are brought into the family of God through the forgiveness that is available through belief in Jesus Christ and in His blood shed for us that has atoned and paid the penalty for our sins. <clears throat> Okay, that's an introduction, right? (laughs) So what Peter is doing here is he's using this as a metaphor for the Christian life, but he's also uh, taking into account their actual life circumstances, right? So they are actual exiles, and Peter is taking that to illustrate their spiritual situation as well. They are chosen by God, so they have a family in God, even though they they don't feel as if they are at home anyplace else, and this choosing by God, has brought them into fellowship, communion with the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, that's his audience, and a little bit about why he's writing it. Next is the author, Peter. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, he says. Peter, his story throughout the gospel, his arc, the arc of his life is just so fascinating to me. And if you've been here for a while, you've heard me preach on this before. I love it so much. I see myself in Peter a lot, and I think a lot of us will see ourselves in Peter. And so what I want to do really quick before we dive too deeply into this book is go through some of the life experiences of Peter that are going to provide some of the background for why he writes the things that he does in this letter. First of all, Peter's saying, talking to them as God's elect. Peter himself was chosen by Jesus. Remember, he was a fisherman, and Jesus encounters him, and he says, come follow me, and you will fish for people. Even in John 6, he says, haven't I chosen you the twelve? After a lot of other disciples are leaving him, they stay, and Jesus says that he has chosen them. In Mark 8, after Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, remember he asks, who do you say I am? And Peter says, says, you are the Messiah. Jesus tells him, I tell you, you are Peter. His name was formerly Simon. He says, now you're Peter. (laughs) Peter means rock in Greek. And on this rock, Jesus says, I will build my church. When names get changed in the Bible, it's pretty significant. Okay, We often think of names as just like signifiers of who you are, like to distinguish you from somebody else. Now, in, in scripture, they implied your identity. And they implied, like, who you are, and even in some cases, like, what you will do, right? And so when Jesus changes Peter's name, that's very significant. And what he's doing here is telling Peter that he's going to be a foundational figure. He is going to play a foundational role in the establishment of the early church movement when he changes his name. And he does. Mark was the earliest gospel that we have, and it was written, uh, it's the accounts of Peter that Peter dictated to Mark, his associate. Peter preaches a sermon in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. That is like 3,000 people come to believe in Jesus. That starts the Christian movement after Jesus. In Acts 15, Peter is the one who speaks up at the Jerusalem council when they're like, what do we do with Gentiles? Are they supposed to follow the law or not? It's a big decision, and Peter's the one who speaks up. Peter is a foundational figure in the early church. He became the rock, as Jesus said. A few verses later, after that like awesome moment with Jesus, uh, <laughs> Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to suffer and die and be raised from the dead. And Peter rebukes him. He says, never, right? Not going to happen. Jesus rebukes back, and it's a little harsh. He tells him, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What's happening here, Peter didn't understand God's will as it pertains to suffering. That as soon as Jesus said, like, I'm going to go to the cross and die, his first gut reaction is like, no way, dude, like, you're going to be king. And we're going to, like, rule with you, right? Like, that's what the Messiah is supposed to be. Jesus is like, you don't get it, Peter. That's not God's will. But Peter didn't understand God's will as it pertains to suffering. He hadn't yet surrendered his will to God. And the picture that we're going to see in this letter is a very different one of how it relates to suffering. And then later when faced with suffering and persecution in the courtyard as Jesus is arrested and being wait, waiting to be put on trial and eventually we know he goes to the cross. Peter follows him into the courtyard. And even though Jesus warned him this would happen, when Peter's confronted by various people in the courtyard, they say, like, aren't you one of his followers too? What does Peter do? He denies him. He goes to the great extent to avoid suffering and pain of denying Jesus his Savior. And then in the Gospel, it says that Jesus looks at him. <laughs> and then the rooster crows. Peter goes out and he breaks down and weeps. Peter was so afraid to suffer that when put on the spot, he denied even knowing Jesus. And then after the resurrection, when the guys just go back to fishing, (laughs) they don't know much at this point of what's going to change. Jesus meets Peter on the beach. And I love it. John's gospel says that he was cooking over a charcoal fire. The only other time a charcoal fire is mentioned in the New Testament is when Peter is in that courtyard, and he denies Jesus three times. So Jesus is cooking a fish over a charcoal fire, so as to say, Peter, I'm bringing you back to that scene. But instead of rubbing his face in the guilt and the shame of it, Peter goes on a walk with Jesus down the beach, and he asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Three times to counter of the three denials. Each time Peter says, "Yes, Lord, you know that I love you," and then Jesus reinstates him to this apostolic community, into his ministry, to being the rock of the church. Because imagine Peter, after denying Jesus three times, knowing that Jesus knew that he denied him three times. Imagine him being like, oh, "That rock thing is out the window, right? I, Change my name back, dude. <laughs> I blew it." But Jesus redeems him, Jesus brings him back and reinstates him and says, now, Peter, you're still the rock. And these failures even are going to provide the context for you. This suffering is going to provide the context, the backbone for you. That suffering that you went through, that's going to provide the basis for how you can lead my church. we already mentioned Peter preaches at Pentecost and 3,000 people believe in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 4, he's put in prison for preaching about Jesus. And eventually, even a few years after he writes this letter of 1 Peter, Peter Peter is a color, right? Uh, (laughs) According to church history, he's martyred in Rome under Nero in the persecution of Nero. So whereas Peter had avoided suffering at all costs before and denied knowing Jesus, he was willing to go to prison in Acts chapter 4. And later in his life, he was willing to even die for Jesus. This is a different guy, (laughs) right? He's changed. Something's different about him. And we will see it throughout this whole letter his perspective, his framework on life, everything is now centered on the gospel of Jesus. And what changed him was encounters with Christ. That is why he says, oh, let's go back. That's why he calls them elect exiles. That's why he says those who have been chosen, because he was chosen. Remember, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Peter's experienced all of those themes, and he knows them to be true. And now he's saying that the believers have this as well. All right, Bans, you guys can come and get set up. We're going to worship here in a moment. A big idea that I will tease out more later when I apply it is the Christian life is the life of an elect refugee in covenant relationship with the Trinity. So remember, Peter's using their actual experience as refugees or temporary residents, resident aliens, whatever you want to say, exiles, to illustrate a key theme of the Christian life, that this is who we are. This dual citizenship. We're citizens of our current culture, our current life. We're also citizens of the kingdom of God, chosen by God be a part of his family. And we're chosen to be in this beautiful covenant relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, when I say refugee, I'm just saying that as, not as a political statement, to be clear. <laughs> I'm saying that because that's a word we're actually familiar with. And when I say refugee, I think that connotes, brings up a lot of pictures for us of refugee camps, right? Of people fleeing Syria, people fleeing fleeing Ukraine, People being unsettled in their current location. They have no home. Christian life is supposed to feel like that for a little bit in our current state. This unsettled state. So Lord, God, we thank you that through the blood of Christ, through the sanctification of the Spirit and your foreknowledge, God, you election of your people, that we are brought into your family. So, Lord, even if we don't feel like we have a home here, we have a home with you. Lord, thank you for your word that reveals this to be true. Thank you for the transformation that's available in the gospel, as Peter illustrates. And, Lord, we worship you. We praise you as elect exiles living in a culture that is not home. So Lord, would you give us wisdom and guide us? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing praises to our God together. Big idea is that the Christian life is the life of an elect refugee in covenant relationship with the Trinity. Remember, Peter said a lot in these first two opening verses. And what he's getting at here is this dual citizenship that we have in, in the current state and redemption history. Our citizenship in our current culture, in our environment, Burlington, 2024, American Western culture. <laughs> but we're also citizens in the kingdom of God. And there's going to be tension there. Peter's original audience didn't feel at home anywhere. So he's reminding them that you have a home in the family of God. More often in our church culture today, the application is that we feel too at home, I think, in our current culture. The other side of the coin that I'll cover first is that we can tend to not live as a refugee, tend to live only in that elect status, that we would think of as more like holiness movements or being separate, so separate from the culture, from the world around us, that we have no touch points with people who don't know Jesus, with the culture around us, and the, we aren't engaging with the idols of the world, the false ideas in the world. Think of this as like monastic movements, We're going to go live way out here and isolate completely from the rest of the world. That's not the way of Jesus. No, the Christian life is to be both. That one isn't as common in our church culture here. I'm going to spend more time on the other one, but it is a temptation, right? The other one is, as I said, to be too comfortable here and not recognize that we are a refugee. That image of a refugee being without a home, with being unsettled in the current culture is to be a part of the Christian life. Too many of us feel too settled. And so these first couple of verses even, they they just challenge us with the question of, uh, do you feel this tension of being a citizen in the kingdom of God, being chosen by God, being a part of God's family, and living in the world that we are in? Or in the culture that we are in now. And as we're going to see throughout this letter, the, the people are they're suffering. They are facing persecution, but we're not facing persecution in the same way, but we suffer. And suffering reminds us of this tension that all is not right with the world. And we're tempted to believe that Maybe God's punishing us. And again, he's saying, no, no, no. <laughs> Listen to the Spirit and see what the Spirit is telling you. And it reminds us of this tension. I think more to the point what Peter is getting at here in the opening is we should feel this tension with the cultural values around us, of being citizens of God's kingdom and being citizens of our current culture. That plays out on many fronts. But let's just talk about some of the ones that are most important in your life. <laughs> right. The culture around us has ideas about finances, right? And how you should live your life. What the good life looks like financially. But being a citizen of the kingdom of God may challenge those ideas. And the Spirit of God may call you to a different lifestyle. That is not the lifestyle of the American dream. And if that is the case, we should feel that tension. We should all feel that tension to a certain degree. So when we look at our financial picture, when we look at our, our the way we manage our wealth, look at our retirement goals, <laughs> Accomplishment in the American dream. I'm not going to give you any specifics. I'm just going to ask you questions of how does your citizenship in the kingdom of God challenge that? How does your elect status create tension there between living a life of comfort? Because as we're going to see, it may not be God's will for you to live a life of total comfort. So being an elect member of the family of God changes that. And there's going to be a tension there. in not only your retirement goals and how you plan to live your life in the future, but in how you use your resources now. When you look at how you handle your wealth, your finances, do you see evidence of this tension? Again, I'm not giving you specifics because there's huge gray areas here in the Christian life. But we need to wrestle with it in some degree. And this is why the Spirit of God, is, God has given us His Spirit, so that we can be led by Him in these decisions. So wrestle with the tensions. We should face this tension of an elect refugee with our culture in our scheduling in how we plan out our time. The big one for us right now in our family is youth sports. My kids love sports, and and we like having our kids in stuff. But how do we balance that tension of being citizens of the kingdom of God and also citizens of our culture here? Because it's very easy for us to go one or the other instead of living in the tension of it. And again, I'm not saying there's an easy answer to it, but we have to wrestle with that tension. Politics. We're citizens of God's kingdom. We're citizens of this culture. We're called to engage in politics, but we shouldn't feel totally at home. In any, we shouldn't be surprised when we don't feel totally at home in one political party or the other because there's this tension, right? They're going to clash. The values are going to clash and butt heads, and we need to wrestle with that tension. Most importantly, this tension exists in our inner life. That plays out in all of those things, (laughs) but most importantly, it's in our inner life. Our culture is isolated and lonely. You have the family of God to belong to. culture is anxious and fearful, we can experience the peace that passes understanding. We present our request to God with thanksgiving. Our culture is just straight up selfish, right? You do you, get what you want. Who cares who you have to burn in the process? We can genuinely love one another from the heart because we have the love of God produced in us by the Spirit of God. Culture is very polarized right now. We can experience unity. Culture calls us to hate our enemies, especially our political enemies, right? Jesus tells us to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, And he didn't just tell us that, he lived it by going to the cross and dying for us. And praying for his enemies who had hung him on the cross. Church, we are foreigners. We are sojourners, exiles, refugees in our current culture. We have a home in our status of elected to the family of God. So we need to feel this tension. You should feel the tension a little bit in all of these areas of your life. And feeling this tension is so good. It's so good for you. Because what it does is it reveals a hope that we have, a longing that we have. Again, suffering reveals that all is not right with the world. All is not right with our current state. And it gives us this hope and this longing for the return of Christ. And we won't live in this elect refugee status anymore, but we'll be fully citizens in the kingdom of God and God's kingdom will be here in full. So there won't be that tension anymore. That's a good longing. And that's a good hope. But we have to wrestle with the tension of it here and now. Peter's going to give us a lot of specific instructions throughout this. But for now, as we open this campaign, wrestle with the tension. And the beauty of it is, and why I brought up Peter, I'm going through some of those things, and you're kicking yourself. of like, man, I'm not doing this well. (laughs) I haven't done this very well. You're in good company. (laughs) Peter denied Jesus three times. But because Peter was elect by God, he was chosen by God to be a part of his family, he did not abandon him. He used those to form him more into the image of Christ. And so Peter became then the rock of the church. The foundation on which Christ builds his church. (laughs) So you have hope. (laughs) This is a part of becoming resilient is going through the failures. The disappointments. And seeing, experiencing God's faithfulness on the other side. And learning that He is good and trustworthy and powerful and faithful through it all. So take hope, take heart. Peter was a different person by the time he wrote this letter in AD 60 than he was in AD 30. If you're wrestling with this tension, the Spirit of God will transform you as you do. More and more into the image of Christ. That's the promise of the gospel. And if you are chosen to be part of his family, he will not let you go. So now we're going to celebrate communion and remember what Jesus did on the cross for us to bring us into this covenant relationship with the Trinity. To know that our status as children in the family of God is not based on our previous mistakes, previous successes, our best and our worst. It's not based on any of that. It's not based on our righteousness or our ability to be good. It is based solely on Jesus, God choosing you and foreknowing you, through the sanctification of the Spirit, him setting you apart, and the blood of Christ, through which we enter into this covenant relationship with God.